Welcome back to the Purpose Innovates podcast. This is where I share conversations that I have with amazing people that I come across as I explore the startup landscape, always looking for an answer to my question, what is the purpose of this innovation? Baskotska is known to be one of the most prolific Western investors in Eastern startups. And as the general partner at Acrobatter Ventures, he has pioneered connecting Western capital with Eastern founders. And in this episode, we take a bird's eye view of this situation to tease out why this has been such a great opportunity. Bass was an early investor in the startup Miro, which has since been evaluated at over a billion dollars, giving it unicorn status. And we discuss, you know, what he saw in that opportunity um, and also what is the difference between smart and dumb money in terms of investment. And also we look at um, some things founders should know when they're speaking to a venture capitalist. I found this conversation to be super enjoyable and I and he's a very relatable person despite so much success. And I'm just so grateful that he was willing to have this conversation with me so I can share it with you all. Thank you so much and enjoy. I would really like to just start things off with a little bit of story from you about what led you to eventually start Acrobatter Ventures and, you know, kind of what started to get your interest in startups and in the innovation space sparked and, and how did that kind of begin for you and what was that path? Thanks for the question. It's, a, it's been a very natural process. Um, I am very enthusiastic all my professional life about digital marketing and about any thing that can help an idea progress into reality uh, through growth. And um, that habit, that pleasant compulsive habit, as if you constantly see the world around you like Rubik's cubes and you want to fix them or at least solve them, uh, that approach um, led me to automatically help uh, people that asked me questions. And I had the advantage that I was a few years ahead of the market in a few regions in the world, um, simply because I happened to be there at the right time. So uh, very quick background, basically set up my first startup and studied some e-commerce and internet marketing in Australia. I'm Dutch myself. And that meant that Australia, being an English-speaking country, was very closely connected to uh, the US. So when I re uh, returned in 2003 from Australia, after having been there for three and a half years, setting up a company, selling its e-commerce company, uh, when I got back to Europe, I was advanced. I was ahead of the market, at least in the Netherlands. And um, I was very useful to the Benelux countries for uh, a large uh, UK travel leader uh, in Europe. So long story short, it meant that I was always a little bit like a surfer on the on the on the right tip of the of the wave. And um, that never really in the West 
made me in a put never put me in a position to really help startups because there was not so much of a startup ecosphere anymore the the, the 2000 bust was gone uh, the bubble mm. uh, so i was very much in the corporate life but when i moved to russia in 2008 um, that was where things started to gradually change of course there was again like a ruble crisis in 2008 2009 i was headhunted by a, a large uk venture capital firm to lead the the russian equivalent of amazon and that was the largest uh, internet company together with yandex in russia so i was straight away visible and apparently especially after the ruble crash i was the only foreigner in the marketing sphere or the e-commerce or tech sphere so that got me quite some attention and I indeed noticed that I was about five years ahead with the knowledge that we had in, in, in Europe compared to what was going on in Russia at the time. Now that gap has definitely been narrowed but that was 2008. So startups started approaching me and they asked me questions about how can I grow my company and can you help and and of course I was managing a very large team so I didn't have that much time but finally getting to the further answer of your question, those startups that wanted my help, uh, they said, I'll give you, we'll give you some equity in our company. And I liked that. And I started in my evenings helping them. And at some point, because I was just working so hard every day, I couldn't spend the money I earned. So I put all my savings in those uh, startups. I don't recommend everyone to put all their savings in startups. It's a very high risk element, but it just organically grew like that. It, it's basically when you when you're like me, I am I am an absolutely I am absolutely an entrepreneur. But to sit on one chair for ten years building a company, that's not really what I am good at. So I love that first wave of, of fixing things, building things, and then after the triple digit growth is slowing down a bit and you need to optimize processes and recruit middle management etc that's where my attention span starts to become a little bit less so when i had all these beautiful startups where i could look in the kitchen be an, a co-owner sometimes a co-founder help them in the evening hours during the day now and then during lunch etc uh, i noticed how pleasant this type of, of, of living or this type of sharing knowledge was and i was in a very grateful and thankful nice environment uh, mutually because uh the startups they were extremely st smart founders there was no one that could really help them that much on the marketing side so i could cherry pick and this kept on going but i did not really notice that the quantity of of startups uh, in the portfolio, if you would call it portfolio, but just in my kind of project pipeline, they were mm -hmm. uh, they were growing and the quantity was growing and also the size of these startups was growing. So this was not done with some sort of smart investment mindset. I just wanted them to grow and that would give me positive, uh, well, adrenaline or positive feelings so um and the money that i invested that was just to show the skin in the game and and, and help them further accelerate so um that part for many years i would say for probably about six seven years that was just the kind of modus vivendi i started working with many different uh, leading companies in in uh, in Russia for uh, just to, as a consultant, but this 
startup lifestyle on the side was was nice. Um, long story short, um, those startups now are, are probably worth around six billion dollars, uh, uh, and um, that was amazing because they started at pretty much zero, maybe at like single digit valuations, and um, and it was only the the last three, four years that I really started noticing, wow, I became this guy in these rankings, like top angel investor or whatever. Whereas all I wanted to do is help the founders grow. I spoke their language. I've been a founder. Uh, uh, that's what you do. And um, somebody else is maybe good in tech and they start helping with the growth through tech. I did it through the marketing and, and, and business development and strategy development. So yeah, that is how it grew. And it sounds... In retrospect, so natural, so normal. Uh, there was no calculated strategy. I, you could ask, okay, but how did you pick the winners? Yeah, I guess it's a little bit of of digital experience that you understand where the product market fit is. Always think with a marketing mind, like, okay, is there any demand in B two B or B two C for this kind of product? A bit of EQ, how you feel that the founder is really funky. Um, and then the deal itself should be attractive. So yeah, and I made some mistakes, uh, not that many, luckily. I think from the 24, 25 deals so far, about four have died in the last 10 years. And um, I really believe that if you start generalizing this or, or making it more abstract then the gap uh, between VC spreadsheets managing of pre-seed and seed stage and at the other side the absolute mismatch of founders trying to find funding where you need 200 companies oh sorry 200 funds uh, to get one term sheet uh, at the same time those funds have a very high very low IRR minus 0.1 percent so that mismatch in itself uh, is, is, is a quest. We should all jointly try to narrow those gaps. An easy, quick game, but you do see a lot of emerging funds now. And um, yeah, I'd say it's a good development. And there's a lot of cash flowing back from founders that have now cashed and they want to help the, the next generation. Right, and that's a really- That was a long answer, right, to your question. <laughs> Well, you gave us so much there, so I really appreciate it. Um, and it's like, yeah, there's a lot of, there was a lot there, but um, I have some like ideas and I want to ask more because you, you spoke about that and, and I, you already started to touch on some things that I wanted to bring up. So that's really good. Um, that idea of a hands-on investor versus the one that kind of you know, says that here's the money, like get me some results. Um, and you kind of made your argument there about the importance of, you know, venture capital, not just providing money, but also providing like expertise and support. Well, the thing is we, we have a, a sister organization called acrobator.com, um, which is a company I basically founded already in 2005 and that now has about 15 to 20 growth hackers. And those help the portfolio founders that want that help. So sometimes we even notice if a founder really wants, we can say, you know what, we'll give you, we'll invest money in your company, but we'll also allocate a part of an extra investment to finance 
you having temporarily a team of hotshots helping you with the growth from scratch or from wherever you are, fill in the blank spots on the map. And then at some point, hand over the, the stick uh, to people they recruit in-house, uh, or maybe they want to get an agency at some point. But this is more of a, a consultancy firm, advisory firm, but that doesn't stop at the strategic level. It basically executes what it preaches and helps that in a very hands-on way. And yeah, you can imagine that it, 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 is a, it, it works for everyone because when you see the startup with marketing eyes before you invest, you already understand where the startup needs help. That can be done fairly quickly. We have that methodology called cash cow bomber. Every character is one particular direction or flavor of, of, of growth marketing. And yeah, you can ask a founder like, okay, did you do anything there? Did you use any of those tools? And then that already means that as an investor, you already understand where you can really add value. And it even grew into a habit that if we see that we can't add value, then we actually feel a bit as if we are washing detergent in a, in a supermarket where all the, the, the washing powders are the same. We want to be that one with the extra little gadget on it that people want to buy in the sense that it's not intellectually challenging for us to be investing just in a funky investment opportunity. I mean, we probably shouldn't say no to it, but we are not competitive if... Uh, another fund can add more value because in the long term, it is a bit of a marriage. So why would we, we be the, the, the kind of fifth wheel on the, on the car? Right. And that, and, and I see how that's like sort of creates a more valuable situation for everyone involved, not just the founders, but also you. Um, and so another thought I want to tease out here is this kind of more macro picture of of the these eastern countries rest um russian speaking dutch speaking perhaps um that you think you know as you described in that first answer that was kind of a big part of your path was kind of being on the edge of that and so i know i've heard you before speak about the sort of abundant talent and then maybe just underutilized talent in the some of these Eastern um, European countries that you've sort of been able to help bridge a gap and help them access some resources. And you have mentioned, and like there's a lot of examples of really big and important um, startups that went huge that came from that space. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that and just the this kind of interesting dynamic for some reason, all this talent um, and, and the need for kind of a bridge to some of the more kind of typical startup hubs and resources. Yeah, that's a nice analysis you make there. Um, the thing is firstly, um, Western capital is attractive to Eastern founders. Um, that is because a lot of the local capital is a bit tainted. It could be politically exposed. Uh, there's people making cynical jokes that you should never ask an oligarch where they earned their first million. So founders, they definitely have a tendency to look global, to look to the West. And that also means funding because they understood and heard from sad situations where someone received money, often actually dumb money, in the East and that 
tainted their cap table and once they want to spread their wings globally they have to try to solve that issue so that's an unfortunate situation uh, because at the same time western capital for pre-seed and seed and late seed stage uh, is not very keen often to invest there's a few accelerators of course global operators that if there's a good business from anywhere in the world that knocks on their door, they'll do it. They'll invest a little bit, a six-digit number, 100,000 or something. But really having a Western fund dedicated to that with feet on the ground in the CIS countries, that you won't find. Uh, we are actually pretty much the only one. Of course, there are some funds that maybe are registered in London, but then still the... The LPs are uh, local money again. Um, so we are a Dutch fund uh, registered in Holland, operated under European guidelines. The Super Central Bank of the Netherlands and the, the local SEC are, are scrutinizing us in a good way, making sure that we comply with everything. And yet we also have our office in the, in, in the CIS uh, country. So uh, that is in a way, the best of both possible worlds, because you yeah, you can access Western capital, but the, well, people like me, I speak the language. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a local for, the, for over 10 years. Um, and yeah, uh, and I speak the founder language, kind of what it is to have been a company. So there is a good connection that you understand as a founder that you can pretty much trust this. That we are a team that is, is not just fresh out of university, uh, ticking the boxes. Uh, no, we've stood in the, in the trenches. We are the sergeant that kind of did the, did the thing ourselves as well. So I would say that in general, when you wanted to get this to a kind of a more helicopter level, this is a, a trend that needs to, to, to better uh, develop. I mean, when you look at the big global players in VC, then you actually notice that entire Europe, not just Eastern Europe, but entire Europe is very underfunded. And it's only been this year or end of last year that, that companies like Sequoia uh, have opened their, their offices in, um, in Europe. So it doesn't mean that they haven't done deals before, but we're still on the Series A level or higher. But they just see such an interesting trend of, of stuff happening uh, in Eastern Europe and Western Europe that it is now time to, to, to make sure that, that American capital is coming this way. Um, and yes, let's face it, uh, American capital is dominating the VC uh, scene. So, okay, now that was all about the money bit. The second thing is, of course, that I do notice uh, that there is a beauty in the mindset of Eastern founders, because they are very resilient. They've had a very good mathematical education. There's extremely high computer literacy and lead, globally leading uh, programming skills. And that all is a bit isolated, uh, especially in the pre-seed and seed stage. Um, and there is a matter of, there needs to be more trust mutually. There needs to be better bridges. There's a lot of attempts. But it's yeah, it's not there yet at all, and um, and of course the local policymakers in uh, former Soviet Union they don't really uh, add much uh, benefits. There's a lot of corruption, etc. So, um, so I would say actually a lot of the founders they are 
really keen to at some point at least move their sales and business development or even their headquarters to the west and just keep research and development in the east where the capital expense is, is more attractive so um that part that there is no kind of smooth path from west uh, from east to west and vice versa is also on the human capital side uh, mm -hmm. founders side so that's the second point and actually that resilience and that computer literacy etc uh, it did make all the, the it made it more logical that there that there are a lot of great companies with Russian founder, Russian speaking founders. So if you look at, I'll just name a few like uh, Revolut, Skype, WhatsApp, Telegram, um, PayPal, uh, Google, Russian speaking founders. So that's when it kind of uh, it rang a bell in my head saying, okay, you know what? We need to have a fund that invests in Russian speaking founders and Ukrainian speaking founders. Uh, but it's not about that region. If they emigrated to Berlin or to New York, good on them. Um, very happy for me. I don't care about the region. For me, it's fun to see that it's that Slavonic mindset uh, or maybe the Dutch mindset as well. Uh, we also invest in Dutch speaking founders. So this is just a thing. I mean, I could never say no to a brilliant entrepreneur from Germany or from UK or from America. Uh, we just make sure that the fund itself, uh, it, it focuses mainly on what I just mentioned. But of course, we make exceptions. So I think about probably 20-30% of the capital would be, um, would be allocated to other people. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah, that's really interesting to, to hear you go through that. And just to, just to make sure I'm understanding this, what you're saying is, especially for the pre-seed to series A, there's a real lack of, of that Western capital that's willing to, to go in there. And, and do you think that is because it's just uncharted territory for them? Is it regulation? And does it feel like a risk to them? And, and I know that you're, you're kind of the one who's faced all that. And so it might be something you can't empathize with a ton, but what is on their mind? And is it just because it's uncharted or what do you think is keeping some more of those bridges from being built, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's a matter of time, but indeed things do go slower. <laughs> I would say that the bridge from, for instance, the US to Western Europe is a more logical one as a step one. Uh, language and culture barriers, it's still a bit of a different market, especially the further east you go to Kazakhstan, uh, deeper into Russia. Um, so that part is there. Uh, there's an element of trust, like we've been on the ground for over 10 years, so we have the inside track. There's 25 founders that can tell, hey, Bess is a nice guy, he actually helped us a lot. You know what? If we get interesting people on our path, the founders, they will say, talk to Bass. Um, so that bit is something that even if you would now fresh fly in as a, as a Silicon Valley VC into to Kiev, I'm sure you'll get, or to Moscow or to Minsk, I'm sure you'll get a warm uh, welcome, but it's, it, it takes two to tango. I'm not sure if all founders straight away 
embrace you uh, with full trust because there's been a lot of cowboys that came and promised a lot and didn't deliver. And the other way around also, I'm sure there's been sad stories of naive or whatever investors coming locally and couldn't really partner with local funds or couldn't do a deal. So this all changes, of course, that when a startup is getting richer in its resources and it can reach out with a series A and an extremely good traction, then um, then it's easy to fly on a plane and, and try to explain. I'm not sure it's always easy to really raise the funds from a US or a European fund, but it does happen quite often. So. Mm -hmm. But that early part uh, is harder. And it's also a lot of funds say, listen, we'd rather wait and pay a bit more, but let's first show me that one or two million traction a year. And mm -hmm. that's that first path towards that first million. That's our specialty or our, our we know how to, to grow hack in that area mm -hmm. and above, of course, to scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's interesting because I can see how having like the experience, like 10 years in the country and speak the language and you have boots on the ground, so to speak, that is kind of maybe something you really need for that early stage to really tease out. And I'm just kind of elaborating here and guessing, but that might really help you find and tease out the, those promising opportunities that are really early stage. And maybe someone in Silicon Valley, like maybe a VC in Silicon Valley, for example, might say, um, you know, I can't have my boots on the ground in the same way. I don't have my pulse. I don't have my finger on the pulse, so to speak, to really tease out those like really promising early stage companies. And it seems like you all have kind of have one of the only like um, positions there where you can do that. And so could you speak, um, you mentioned something that I just wasn't super sure what you meant by um, dumb money versus smart money. And I wonder if you could just speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I may be a little bit biased in the sense that for me, people that are, I'm only investing in tech companies uh, and that means that if somebody is extremely good in selling cars offline uh, and then invests for the first time into an internet shop or into deep tech or whatever, it could be that the knowledge, it's very likely that the knowledge of the investor is not, uh, not much of an added value. So I'd say the dumb money in the local area, I'm not sure how it's in the West, but in, 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 in Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, et cetera, dumb money is maybe someone that maybe is successful in a chain of restaurants, but have no clue of how servers work, et cetera. So if you have that kind of money on board and everything goes great, it's wonderful. But once the dumb money starts panicking, because they have no clue what's going on and but where is my where are my assets etc uh, that could turn against the founder because there's mm -hmm. too much of a language barrier so that's what i explained i i hope it doesn't sound too uh, too unfriendly but that's just the the, the lingo in the in the sector mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. got you um could you speak a little bit about um about miro and and like what you saw there. I mean, I know it's kind of, it's always like hindsight is 2020 and it's not like you knew that Miro was gonna be a unicorn, but like just take us through that story if you would, like 
when you invested there? Like what was on your mind? I know it's, like I said, it's kind of like hindsight's 2020 type of thing. You couldn't have known, but what did you see in that company? The first thing I remember is that the moment I met Andre, the founder, was in Moscow, I think around 2013, 2014. And apparently there was something about him personally that really, yeah, inspired me positively. Uh, he had no business in that field yet, but he was a smart guy with a lot of ambition and passion and constantly trying. So he was enthusiastically showing me on his laptop what he was busy with. He was from Perm, which is not far from the Ural Mountains in the mid of Russia. And it was actually interesting that somehow maybe it's his charisma or it's his friendliness or his openness or transparency, but the people I was sitting in a in a in a a panel with at that small conference, there were about two hundred people in the room. Those were really hot shots. The founder of Reddit, founder of GetTaxi, founder of Viber, founder of something. Yeah, I think Jubal was there. Uh, so basically, really interesting people. They they came with Dave McClure uh, to uh, to Moscow uh, first, kind of. Reconnaissance in 2013-14. Uh, so it was a fun evening, but for some reason I was completely distracted and I was speaking to Andre, which was for me more interesting because it was on the on the product level. Uh, of course, later on I, I went back to the dinner, etc., and it was a lot of fun. But so uh, so that was how I met Andre, and he invited me uh, kindly to come to uh, a summer camp in uh, a small half-deserted holiday camp in. Um, in in in, in Perm, and the people there that I met, they were utterly casually dressed, and it was a nice sun was shining in a very, well abandoned almost, but very basic uh, summer camp. And they asked me to, while the sun was shining under a little uh, roof, to uh, to to tell about my marketing experience. And that went on for many hours, and everybody asked extremely intelligent questions. And afterwards, I understood there were players in that little group of people that already had a hundred million dollar business that I never heard of, um, hundred million dollar sales business. So in the gaming sector, etc. And um, I understood there was a lot of talent there and Andre was a, a spider in the web. And I was respecting that a lot. And I started on a regular basis sparring with him. He would come to Moscow where I at the time was living uh, with new ideas, new platforms. And um, that firstly became a friendship. It became a little bit of a mentorship. Uh, there was practical, tactical knowledge being shared. And I did this just out of the passion of, well, wanting to solve the Rubik's Cube. And of course, then the day that uh, Andre called me and said, Bas, I think I finally nailed it. Uh, there's something that is really seem, seeming to work. And so much thanks for all your marketing know-how. I would love to have you on board as an investor. Uh, I pretty much... It was logical that I shouldn't even think too long. Uh, so already before he sent the pitch deck, I was already saying, like, I believe in you, so uh, let's do it. But of course, I will read the pitch deck and ask some uh, questions. And the money he was raising, I didn't have all of it myself. So I asked two close friends uh, that were also already partners in my mini angel fund in the Netherlands to also join me. And uh, then that's how it happened. 
and actually I also should say something that I haven't thought before, but there's an extreme level of gentlemanship in Andre because in a Dutch kitchen, we shook hands on a deal in a particular valuation, etc. And then lawyers started, um, because there were a few angels, uh, they all made themselves important, these lawyers, and there was a, somehow there was a reason for a lot of delay. And I think it has cost maybe near, well, maybe almost a year before finally the final version of a deal was set. But the company mm. itself grew and grew and grew in that year. Mm. And Andre stuck to his word, to the hands he shook in the kitchen, never complaining, saying, you know what, we should renegotiate. So he allowed those people of the first, well, seed round to, to, um, to enjoy that paper profit. And indeed, after we signed and wired the money, then already three months later, there was an amazing exit offer. And we all said, wait a second, we're just on board. That's not sportive. Let's stay. And since then, it's just been a complete rocket ride from mm -hmm. single digit valuation to a uh, uh, unicorn status in, uh, in, in, in a few years. And that is very inspiring to see how that works and that you really need to see the right founder and that then that product passion that founder has is the foundation of, of success. And yeah, you can say 2020, but indeed I do believe that there is a, a set of intuitive and practical tactical rules jointly that can make you at least mitigate parts of the wrong decisions and risks. So, and for that, you need to be operator-led. You need to understand what it is to be a founder that already filters out a lot of issues. You need to be an expert in a particular niche. Um, you need to have that entrepreneurial drive to not think, you know what, I'm gonna give you your, my money and I'm gonna lean back and wait. That's not how it works. So that all combined um, with a few other tips and tricks, that's, um, that's how it's done. What is one thing that people seem to misunderstand about um, being a VC? And like, is there anything that you have on the inside that you think people might not generally understand that is just kind of a unique thing? If I understand your interesting question correctly, um, you'd like for, for instance, founders to understand what is going on in that head of an investor a little bit more. Is that, yeah. Sure, that sounds great, yeah. yeah. I think um, when you're an angel investor, that's the best of both possible worlds because you can have a nice coffee with someone, you feel the passion, you share the passion, you write the check. When you're dealing as a VC, you're all of a sudden a mini bank. You are forced to be compliant with a lot of stuff. You need to paper trails. You need to have uh, like uh, compliance, paperwork, uh, processes. So the passion that you have with the intuitive initial smaller check, uh, all of a sudden you have checks on steroids and you need to really feel more responsible. You can of course have that initial ignition and the combustion engine can, can start rolling and, and running, but you do need to have a lot of safety checks. So that means that sometimes for a founder, they wonder why is it all taking so much time? And unfortunately that is sometimes the case. Uh, I really love to see that funds can act faster um, and it should happen, but it is also about funds 
having those processes very much optimized. And what I noticed, I was shocked when in a room with 17 VCs of different funds, billions under management, when I asked the guys, how do you manage your deal flow? And some say, well, we use Excel. Uh, yeah, we use Gmail. Yeah, we use uh, a little uh, basic CRM tool. Um, but there was no professional machine and also not normal engagement tactics, et cetera, for this. So long story short, um, um, that part, the slowness is something that it would be great if it's it could be increased. And that's something that as a founder, please understand that for the VC very often, it's also an, an issue. Uh, they would like to do it faster. Second thing is, don't I, I like to speak for all VCs who account, but there is always this idea that VCs are um, maybe a kind of evil creatures that want to really nastily get the best deal and, and, and just, I guess there's a lot of those, but if you find the right investor that really is there to, to support you along the way, then, then I think there's a lot of founders that can testify that there's great investors that are really your friend. If it goes great, it's great. If it goes bad, they try to help as much as they can. And you're a team all of a sudden once that cash has been invested. So uh, don't program yourself as a founder to think that that investor is, uh, is maybe uh, always after your, uh, well, after everything you've got, um, but do of course lawyer up, uh, get or or use the safe notes and convertible notes. At least that that part is very standardized. So, um, what else can I say? I think a lot of VCs tend to not deliver fully on what they promise. So yeah, we know a lot of people, and of course we'll help you. And then all of a sudden, I hear often from founders that afterwards, when the when the money is paid, which is great. Uh, it's a bit silent. All that happy joy, joy of, of being a, a partner on board, it's not always the case. So do your VC due diligence. Ask some other founders that you see in the portfolio, hey, how is it really? Can you anonymously tell me, are these guys really delivering or girls? So um, yeah, I think that's the thing. At the end of the day, these are people taking massive risks, those investors. So is the highest risk asset class. They have also a lot of responsibility towards their backers. So cut them a little bit of slack, understand that they have to go nitty gritty. They have this boring due diligence stuff in place, but um, do check, I'd say for investors with a nice operator led background. I think ex-founders, they, they understand what you're going through and that's probably a little bit better than just the theoretical knowledge from business school. Beautiful. Well, we're reaching the end of our time here, and I just want to thank you for that. There's so much to get from you and a lot to hear in this episode, so I'm excited to share it with everybody, and really just thank you so, so much for coming on. Chris, it was a pleasure. It's always great to talk to you.